in sports, expectation has a huge role in athletic performance. Did you know that? When a team thinks we can't win, what usually happens? They lose. There is this matter of expectation. And I think that Paul is trying to help us. What can you expect? I, I thought of this. In, in, on May the 6th, 1954, Roger Bannister, who was a medical student at Oxford University in England, uh, was training and, and running, and the whole goal was to at some point break a four-minute mile. Uh, and up to that point in 1954, nobody had ever done it. Uh, there was a couple of Italians that had uh, uh, gotten close. Uh, there were some other runners. It was thought in that day, and Bannister was a medical student, it was thought and believed that the human body could not take the pressure and the force of a four-minute mile. They did not believe that a human body, now this is the medical field, which Bannister's a part, he's a doctor, or he's in training. And Roger Bannister, through his training, goes to uh, ILF, or whatever you call it, a little track there, right out of Oxford. And on May the 6th, 1954, ran a mile in three minutes and 59 seconds. He tells the story that when he finished, he fell down and just kind of collapsed. And his first thought was this. When he had heard somebody shouted out something about the four-minute mile, he said, then I must be dead. <laughs> he really did. Bannister heard, I broke the four-minute mile, and I'm down on the ground, so I must be dead. Right? Because of the expectation. You know what's fascinating about that? 46 days later, an Australian runner named John Landry broke Bannister's record. And after that, a series of runners continued to break the record to the extent that now the miles record is 343. Now what happened? People's expectations were hindering them. They were thinking, you can't do this. It's not possible. You can't run a four-minute mile. You'll die. Medical doctors, medical field. And yet, when it happened, almost immediately, the expectation changed, and everything changed in track and field. I've wondered about that because I thought, what do we expect? What do we expect in this life in the Spirit? <clears throat> do we expect, well, you know, we're just human. We know that. Some of us are more than that. <laughs> that, that the idea of what do we expect? So I want to ask us to look at this real quickly. We've already worked down to about verse 9. And if you want to listen to some of the recordings, I think last week was not recorded. We've had some problems with it, but uh, I'll send you my notes. When Paul says in Romans chapter nine, uh, verse uh, chapter eight, verse nine, you're not in the flesh anymore, but in the spirit. I told you the word flesh can be used three different ways. Two of them are generic, and the third one is life lived by human power and ability only. Life lived by human power and ability and intellect and any way you want to call it. That's life in the flesh because it opposes the spirit. It says, I can do it on my own. I'm good enough. I'm well enough. I'm strong enough. I'll take care of this. Uh, Paul also calls that earlier life in Adam. Life in human ability. So he says, you're no longer in the flesh. That idea of you're not living your life anymore just by human power and intellect and ability. He says here, but you are if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. 
anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. By the way, this, this, this relates to a point. You'll, there are traditions that would say that, uh, you know, until you have some experience uh, with the Holy Spirit, he's not in you. Uh, this proves that's absolutely incorrect. Uh, there's no such thing as a follower of Jesus or a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. No, no such animal. It's what he says. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not even his. So, so that's the assumption there. So then, verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. <coughs> now notice this. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Him from the dead will also give life to your body through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we're under no obligation to live under the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So I want to suggest what we can expect here is a new ability. A new ability. Now, I don't have time to unpack all this. But Paul says here, there's a new ability in the follower of Jesus. And that is, if you will, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwelling and living in you. That's the Christian life. It isn't try harder. It isn't just believe a bunch of new ideas, although those are all new ideas are great. It is the understanding or the notion that there is one living in us who is greater than others. And we'll, 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 we'll look at that here in a minute. So that Paul is making this observation that we are now living in the Spirit. We no longer depend on or trust or rely on human ability alone. Now that, that doesn't mean we don't use our minds. Uh, you know, uh, I, we, you, you might have a decision to make. You might have something you've got to do at work or at home or with your family. And you might say, well, you know, here's an issue. The thing is then, as I rely upon the Spirit to begin to rely, I say, okay, Father, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do? How would you have me do this? Maybe the Spirit will bring a scripture to mind, you know? Maybe the, maybe the Spirit will bring a scripture to mind. So here's, here's how you ought to, to act or react. We got a phone call the other day and, and, uh, from, a, from, from a part of the family that we don't talk to a lot. And all of a sudden, uh, Cliff decided, here's what we're going to say. No, <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted to do. You know, Spirit nudges you a little bit. The Spirit bumps you. You ever had that happen before? Kind of nudge you a little bit, elbow you? I've had that a few times in church. I thought it was Becky, but it was actually the Spirit. This is the, this is the genius of the Christian life. That, that, that Paul is saying that the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Can you let that just settle in you for a second? This isn't just some religiosity or churchianity. Paul is saying if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting Him alone, the Spirit of Him who raised the dead. Listen, do you expect that? Or do you expect to just have to operate by, by humor? Now, I wrote in my notes earlier, I said, Cliff, don't oversell this. I'm not, I'm not talking about living like an angel or not having problems. When I think of this, I think of this, this idea. Um, I'm still fascinated by airplanes. How does a 70,000, 35-ton piece of metal get off the ground? I'm telling you, I still hug the neck of pilots when I can. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You know? I'm serious. I mean, I'm like looking at that thing and how does this happen? This is the way I, this is my, this is, you don't have to believe this, but this is why I see it. Life in the Spirit is a bit like flying an airplane. There's a principle by which the plane flies. 
there are two, a couple of laws actually going on when an airplane flies. One is gravity. We all know that one. Uh, and the other one is Bernoulli's law. Now, as I've researched and studied this, Bernoulli's law is that when this wing and all that jazz, you know, you engineers can figure this all out later. But the way the wing and the, the, the form of it, the way it makes the air go across the top of it means that the pressure in the wind is lower above than below. And Bernoulli's law uses the law of gravity, friction, to create what we call lift. That as the air goes over the top of that wing, that's what makes it fly. I mean, it's got to have an engine, but the lift is because the air is going over the top of the wing faster and displacing the, the pressure and the pressures. Lord, that's all I know. Okay? <laughs> just, I've just exhausted my knowledge. But when I think about that, I think, you know, the law of gravity is still there when you're flying. It hasn't, it, it, it hasn't evaporated. In fact, if you are not careful, and things I've read before, you know, you can get reintroduced to the law of gravity quickly. <laughs> and it's rude. You know? It's not that the law of gravity hates you. It's, just, it's rude. You know? uh, so when you're flying an airplane, there are a couple of laws operating. One is the Bernoulli's law that is using the law of gravity through friction. Listen, Life in the Spirit doesn't mean that there isn't still the flesh and these things hanging around. Life in the Spirit doesn't mean that there isn't still the temptation to go back to Adam, to, to think of human power and human ability. It's there. There's simply a greater law that's operating. It's the law of life in the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set me free. It's not that the law of, of, of the flesh and the, and the reality is still there. This, this isn't what we call triumphalism. That, okay, I got saved and everything. The devil died. Not true. But there's a greater law here. You know, it's interesting in Romans here where Paul makes this statement. He uses the word, and I don't have time to do them all, but throughout this chapter, he uses the word spirit 17 times. You've got to go back and look at that. 17 different times the word spirit is used in chapter 8 alone. What's fascinating to me is we, if you want to listen to it, we talked about Romans 7 a couple weeks ago. There's a, there's a huge shift that, that in Romans 7 there's a word that shows up 40 times. You know what the word is? Close. We talked about how the law cannot deal with sin. There, there's a word that shows up in Romans 7 40 times. It's this word. I. I can't do what I want to do. I can't stop doing what I am doing. I know that in my members, there's a law. I, I, I. Forty times. And sometimes Paul even intensifies it in Greek. It's called I, myself. You know what the Greek word for I is, don't you? Ego. Not ego. That's a waffle. <laughs> ego. The word I. Ego. I can do it. See, the Christian lives by another law. Is the ego still there? Sure. We still got one, don't we? Is there still the temptation to go over to the flesh and to give it? You betcha. But there's another law operating here. And it's the law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ. Now notice what he says. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He will give life to your mortal body. We said that last week. Human beings' problems not that they're bad and sinners if they don't have life. They're trying to find life everywhere else except God. Do you believe that? You know what? I, I read Gordon Fee, who's a great, great scholar. And I, I heard some of you when, he, when I was reading him. Because there are lots of you still in my head up here too. Gordon said in his work there that he said, what people want now is a formula. So how does that work, Cliff? Yeah, I want a formula. Paul doesn't give it. Paul doesn't give you a formula. He doesn't, he doesn't offer you four steps to spiritual maturity. He doesn't offer you some formula. He offers you a relationship. It's with the Spirit. You know, I asked you last, this past week, we'd all try to be mindful. The 60 by 60 challenge. I, I was surprised all week how, as I did that, I was mindful of the Spirit. See, this idea is not that there's some formula or three steps or nine steps, but this Spirit that lives within us. I'll give you another verse you can look at later in 1 John 4, 4 that says, Greater is He that is in you than he that's in the world. Remember that? Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm not talking about feelings here. I'm not, I'm not talking about just some emotional thing. I'm talking about that we need to center into and expect that there is God's ability for our lives. I think sometimes I've given up, maybe you've given up, because I didn't even expect anything good to happen. I just thought it's going to go that way. What do you expect? Do you expect, hear what he says, he will give life to your mortal bodies? So then, brethren, we're under no obligation to the flesh. We don't have to. We don't have to. But to live according to the flesh, for you, we, we can put to death the deeds of the body through the Spirit. Not through your effort, not through trying, through reliance, dependence, and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, it works for me. I've just had to at different times say, Holy Spirit, I need you right now to give me the strength and the power and the wisdom to look to you right now. I need to look to you. And quit thinking it's my effort and I can do it. I've got to look to you. So I want to ask you to consider this at least. What if you choose to read each day Romans 8, 11 or 1 John 4, 4 this week and believe it for your life? Quit letting the devil lie to you. You're a victim. You can't stop. You're this. You're No, no. There is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead living in you. And if not, let's all just go to brunch, okay? Because all this is is philosophical meandering. Or there's a reality here of one who comes to live within us, who gives us power to live the Christian life. I want to go that route. The second thing here I want to ask you to consider, notice this. The experience of being led. Notice here in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now notice that. What, what, what can we expect is to be led. But the question for me here, and over the years as I've kind of worked through this, the, the, the expectation of being led, 
of, of being willing to be led. I, I tell my students it's this. They, I think they understand this. They say this experience of expectation to the Spirit is being coachable. Coachable. we got a lot of athletes at the school. You know, have you met athletes that thought they knew it all and didn't need anybody to coach them? Uh, I was reading about this the other day. I, I, I lived in Kentucky for some while, and there is some discussion uh, that has been a guy named DeMarcus Cousins who came out of Kentucky in 2010, who's an incredible athlete. The headlines, though, have been on Team Stream and other that DeMarcus Cousins may be one of the most uncoachable athletes in the NBA. And that one of the reasons is he refuses to take instructions from uh, Paul Westfall, who's a Hall of Fame coach. But apparently, there is this difficulty between them where he refuses to take his direction. I thought about Tiger Woods. Some years ago, there was this guy that used to win some golf tournaments. <laughs> Remember him? Did you know that Tiger Woods, over the years, has had a swing coach? Somebody that worked with him on his swing. Now, that didn't surprise me. I thought, you know, these guys are good athletes. They're constantly practicing. What did surprise me was who these guys were. When I looked up and realized that Butch Harmon, who was his first swing coach, and you know how many PGA major tournaments Butch Harmon has ever won in the golf tournaments? None. Zero. He did win, however. He did win the Broome County Open. So, give it up to Butch. Go on. Hey, you didn't win the Broome County Invitation. Right? You see y'all on TV. None. And yet he paid Butch close to a quarter million dollars a year to work on his swing. Then they got upset and he took on Hank Haney. Hank Haney, also a great swing coach, pays, gets paid a quarter million dollars by a lot of guys. You know how many PGA tournaments he's won? Zero. Tiger's latest coach, Sean Foley, who I think he just fired. All of these guys are incredible coaches who never won any major tournaments. Maybe the greatest golf book ever by Harvey Penick, the little red book on golf. Penick didn't win a lot of, of uh, tournaments. How coachable does an athlete have to be to say, you know what, I recognize that you know something here that I need and I'll pay you thousands of dollars to teach you. That's coaching. That's willing to say, I'll let you guide me and lead me. Athletes do that. They know that in order to get better, they have to be coachable. Paul says here, the evidence, the information here, that you're a child of God or that I'm a child of God, is we're coachable. We're being led. We're being God. Remember, this one who lives in us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, guess what? This is an inside job now. Those who are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I ask myself, wouldn't it be interesting if we, if we gave that as the definition of what it means to be saved or a follower of Jesus? 80% of Americans believe in God. But are 80% of Americans being led by the Spirit of God? See, wouldn't it be interesting if we said, now wait a minute, the, the feature here is whether you're being led by the Spirit of God. Not your belief system, not just that you have a bunch of ideas or you're orthodox in your thinking, but are you expecting to be led? Paul seems to suggest that's it. Now, I've got to show you here something that at least for me has been helpful. Notice where Paul said, you will not be led. 
Or did you say, what did you say? Or will you not be led? <clears throat> says it right there, in verse 15. My, the numeric standard had the word leading right in there. Huh? For you not received this spirit of slavery. What? Leading to fear. to fear. When? Again. Again. Listen. This is interesting to me. One of the features sometimes, if you're not, in my judgment, not careful. <clears throat> An old Puritan writer said it like this. We should... In other words, we should grieve or give up on our sin. But we should never give up on Christ as our hope. Right? We shouldn't take sin lightly. We shouldn't just blow it off. We, we should grieve and we should take our sin seriously. But we should never give up our hope in Christ. And I grew up in a tradition, just me now, maybe nobody else. Fear was a distinguishing characteristic of being a Christian. I was scared to I, You know, we sing this song around here. I love it. You know, I am a friend of God. I want to sing for you, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am His friend. Yeah, me and Ken Smith, you sing like this. I am afraid of God. I am afraid of God. I am afraid of God. I am afraid. Did you grow up like that? Fear. You know, when I read this years ago and began to study this and begin to think, wait a minute. If I am going to be led, I'm going to be led to a spirit of sonship. Not slavery. He says here, you've not, been, you've not received the spirit of slavery to fear again. You've received the spirit of adoption where you cry, Abba, Father. It's fascinating to me. John Wesley even commented on this when he talked about that in his own opinion, his belief, was that there were two kind of types of Christians. One was that had the spirit of slavery and one who had the spirit of the Son. I can tell you my own experience that my life, when, when I was growing up and coming to Christ, I think my Christian life was more typified by slavery than sonship. I, I don't know how I got that all. My mom would say, gummed up. But spirit of slave as a fear-based, if you will, matter. You know, this, this verse here too, this, this idea of being led to, to assurance. For it, it says, for the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. I've really got to hurry. But you'll notice, uh, you ever been to an airport, you ever notice people that are on standby? They're waiting for a flight. You know, they're pacing back and forth. Hey, are we, is there anybody? Is there anybody there? You know, can you go? I've been there before, you know, and, and people are pacing. And, you know, and then you've seen people that have a ticket. Do you notice the difference in them? Notice the difference in them? Let me tell you, assurance that we're a child of God is like that. The assurance that we're a child of God, that we have the Spirit of Jesus, is just like that. We're not nervous. We're not nerve-wracking all the time. Am I on? Am I off? Am I on? Am I off? No. We have the assurance. He said, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You've got to give me five minutes. I'm sorry. If you've got to leave, I know maybe you've got to go see your dad or something or take lunch. But let me, let me just stop here. Because look, there's an important preposition 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And there's some of you out here like me. When I heard this, because I was dealt with so much fear and anxiety, the only witness I ever got was how much of a crumb you were, Cliff. How sorry you were. That's what I heard in my head. And then, and then people said, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you'll know so. Really? I, I don't know. Really? Here's what I've observed. I've observed people in ministry and in the university who have no obvious fruit in their life, which Jesus said that's how we know. And yet they are as convinced as can be of their status with God and they're secure to the end. And yet no fruit. They have a high view of themselves and a low view of God. That, that, that doesn't surprise me. But what does surprise me is this other group. There's also a group of people I've seen whose lives bear witness to the presence of Jesus. Who are serious and desire to please Him and honor Him. And have no confidence. Now how do you, how do you account for how do you account for people whose lives bear witness to the presence of Jesus? That bear Because of this, look who said, he bears witness with our spirit. One of my professors at Asbury made this observation. I think he's right. Some of us have a broken spirit. The conversations we have about ourselves, what we say about ourselves is you're no good. If they ever find out who you are, they'll know you're not smart. If people ever really get to know you, they won't like you. See, your spirit is... The Scripture says He has to bear witness with it. With our spirit. And I want to say to some of you who perhaps like me struggled with this verse all your life, that you didn't have that powerful assurance that other people talk about. It may be that what's happened here is that your own sense of your own spirit is broken. By experience, by people, by religious matters. I can tell you this, there's a lot of research about this that would indicate that this, and, I, and I'll close with this. Um, I just got to hurry. The Greek word here says, he witnesses with our spirit, not in spite of, not overpowering, with our spirit. It's a Greek term here that is, means that it's with us, not overpowering us. Years ago, you probably remember, Karen Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Karen Carpenter died of a heart failure because she had bodily dysmorphic disorder. That's the technical term. Bodily dysmorphic disorder. I, saw, I, saw, I, I was going to put a picture. I, I couldn't bear for you to see it. Because the picture of Karen Carpenter, before she died, if she looked at herself and then said, I need to lose some weight. The inability to correctly assess herself is staggering. And it killed her. She died because she saw herself as too heavy. And was looking in the same mirror you and I are looking in. I want to ask you to consider as you think about that when you think of yourself or you see yourself as unworthy of God's love. 
are incapable of measuring up, or being one who has failed too many times, that you've got to get out of that by understanding that the Spirit wants to bear witness that you're His child. You put your faith in Jesus, you're His. This happens more often than you might imagine. I talk to people all the time because my sin is too much or my failure is too much. Anytime God tries to witness to their spirit, what do they do? Well, if you knew me, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't do that. Well, if you understood what I've done, you wouldn't. They have that bodily dysmorphic disorder. What's tragic in our physical sense can be tragic in spiritual. Why don't you ask yourself this question later today? I want you to go to the mirror at your house. Go, you know, do it when you're alone. And I want you to look yourself in the mirror and say, who do you see? Do you see a child of God? Someone who's been, been given the spirit of Abba? Or do you see somebody who doesn't measure up? If people knew, they'd run from them. And grab this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 5. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Quit telling yourself that lie. You've trusted Jesus. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Now Lord Jesus, uh, we've run through this and uh, we need your help. There are no formulas here. There are no magic plans. Your Word is trying to tell us here something. We can expect assurance and sonship, daughtership. Would you guide us out of our own heads and our own thinking into your mind and your thinking and to live each day knowing there is no fear in love? For perfect love casts out fear. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen.